invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we're in chapter 19, so please turn there. We'll begin at verse 23 and go to verse 41. And before I read the scriptures, I need to get something out of the way, so I won't have to say it again. If you notice, look what Pam gave me for Valentine's Day. No, uh, I got up this morning and it was completely shut, the left eye, and I thought of Rocky Balboa when he looked in his corner and said to Mick, cut me, Mick, cut me, which, you know, they cut boxers' eyelids when they swell up. So I thought about that for a second, but instead I used compression. No, actually I have, I think, more than one sty on the inside of the eyelid, and it just feels like you have grains of sand in your eye. That's the best way to say it. So let me get that out of the way. If I look funny, that's why. Now, let's turn our uh, attention to more uh, important matters, and that is the word of the Lord. Please hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in verse 23 of Acts chapter 19. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trade and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade is ours, of, of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even depend, be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Alexander whom the Jews had put forward, uh, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things uh, cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are, really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we open up your word, you will open up our hearts and you will speak to us in a very potent and personal way that you will challenge us, you will convict us, you will rebuke us, you will train us in righteousness. We pray that the Holy Spirit, who breathed out the Word, will at the same time illuminate our minds so that we can perceive and understand and believe the truth of what we hear today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last recorded event of the Apostle Paul's ministry at Ephesus, Paul does not speak a single word. Despite his desire to defend his co-workers from the mob that had been whipped into a frenzy of religious zeal and civic pride. Luke records the riot stirred up by the Ephesian silversmiths not to introduce another Pauline sermon, but to illustrate the enemies of the way. Not its advocates are responsible for social uh, unrest that attends the spread of Christ's gospel. The riot completes the pattern of responses to Paul's gospel proclamation from the Jewish community and from the Gentiles, which we've seen elsewhere as we followed Paul. We saw it in Antioch, Iconium, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. First, Paul, as usual, goes to the synagogue and preaches, persuading Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, but evoking others' opposition. And then he preaches to pagans in public venues, converting as many of those who profit from the pagan establishment threatened by the word's growing power, retaliate, through mob violence. So the issue here, as we look at it, no matter how Demetrius tries to fashion it, it's nothing more than rank idolatry. That's what's going on here. And so when we think about idolatry, we usually think of something like Artemis. By the way, the Diana or Artemis of Ephesus is different than the Diana of Greek mythology in many ways. For example, the Diana of Greek mythology was a hunter who had a bow and arrow, uh, was accompanied by a deer, and was a hunt huntress, so to speak. The um, goddess Artemis, also known as Diana in Ephesus, was obviously uh, originated from a meteorite falling to the earth of black rock and then that rock uh, was shaped into uh, a woman who had many nodes all over her body. She had multiple breasts. The bottom half of her was wrapped in some sort of uh, gauze. And um, 
she was a fertility goddess. In other words, if you want things to go well with you, if you want to prosper in life, if you want abundance, you want wealth, you want health, you want healing, then Diana or Artemis is the temple you go to and worship. And so while we can look at that and say how primitive, we have our own idolatry. We have what Ezekiel called idolatry of the heart. And so let's talk about that just for a moment so that we will not escape. We will not just simply prophetically um, cut down someone like Demetrius the silversmith, but we will see that Demetrius has the same kind of problem we do, and that is the problem of idolatry. And so the objects or symbols for what a particular God could provide for its worship are, are what the Bible calls idols. And when we understand that symbolism, we understand the sophistic business that idol-making has become not only for them in this culture, but for us in the postmodern culture. Idol worship is not something found only among naive and superstitious people, but it is characteristic of all human Beings. We sort of have a chronological snobbery as we look at idol worshipers in the first century, but we're just like them. John Calvin, it was, who said that the heart of man is an idol factory. We are constantly making our own idols because there is a dimension of our existence that's fallen, that tries to find life and hope and peace and meaning outside of ourselves because we can't find it inside of ourselves. And so we either turn to the living God who is presented to us in Scripture or we create or make our own idols. Our idols are those things that give our lives meaning. They are the things of which I say or you say, I need this to really be happy and fulfilled. Or if I don't have this, my life is a loser. It's zero. It's worthless. It's meaningless. We say by implication to our Lord, it's good to have you, but there are other things which I must have or my life will never be happy or meaningful. If I can't have what I really want, that thing besides you, I'm going to despair. I will live in hopelessness. You are not enough for me. I need this too as a requirement for being fulfilled. In fact, if you would take this away from me, I might just turn my back on you and walk away. For you are negotiable, but this is not. This is the real heart, passion, and goal of my life. And if you are not useful to me in achieving it, I just might turn on you. Now, that's pretty stark language, isn't it? And a lot of us are pretty defensive about that. We would say to ourselves, well, not me. I mean, I'm not really like that. I'm, I'm older and I'm mature and I'm wise. But you have, more than you know, more than you know, idols of the heart. Idols are by no means limited to one per person. As I said earlier, Calvin commented that the human heart was an idol-making factory. We are sinfully ingen uh, ingenious at generating new idols and can find ourselves serving a number of them at the same time. An idol is a physical object or property 
or a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, or a hero, believing that they have power to grant us joy and happiness and hope and fulfillment, we come under their mastery and they rule us. We hotly pursue them and wait for them to bestow their blessings on us. They come to control us. We feel we must have them and go to great strides to get them. It is when we begin to speak of these things by saying, I must have that, that we recognize the deep similarity between idols and what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. Again, we must be careful not to define it too narrowly. Lust of the flesh are more than bodily appetites. We should think of them as inordinate desires. Inordinate means overdoing it, over desires. We may even want something good too much in a way that's disconnected from God. And so what do we see in Ephesus? We see the reaction of not Christians who are struggling with idols, but unbelievers who are mastered by idolatry. By the way, that's a helpful way to talk to a postmodern person who doesn't believe Scripture is the Word of God, who doesn't believe truth exists, is to talk to them about what they crave. Because everybody craves something. We're craving people. We were made to find life outside of ourselves, not inside of ourselves. And so that narrative helps us understand um, the whole concept of idolatry. And so toward the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, a major disturbance concerning the way occurred and was provoked by Demetrius, the leader of the silversmiths' guild, uh, uh, associated with the world-famous temple of Artemis. Last week, I think I said the temple of Artemis was twice the size of the Parthenon in Athens. That was wrong or incorrect. It's four times the size of the Parthenon. Now, I've never been to Athens, but I have been to Nashville, Tennessee, and they have a copy of the Parthenon there. And I remember as a little kid walking through there, thought it was the coolest place I'd seen because of the columns and all of that. But it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and this temple attracted worshipers throughout the empire, especially at the annual festival of drama, feasting, processions, and other pageantry held in honor of the goddess around the time of the spring equinox. And this was a worldwide event. This was where people streamed from all of the known world at that time to come to Ephesus to this festival. It was huge uh, all throughout uh, the Mediterranean world. Small terracotta replicas of the temple and its idol have been found throughout the Mediterranean world, but Demetrius and his co-workers made more expensive silver souvenirs to be purchased by pilgrims for their shrines at home. This is sort of an Ephesian Mardi Gras. Uh, it's it's uh, it was amazing what people did. I won't get into it. You don't need to know, but it was sin, shall we say? People did a lot of sinning during this celebration, and the temple of Artemis was regarded as the dominant economic power in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis would be very similar to what the gaming industry is in this town, and so when people's idols are threatened. What do they do? They get angry. 
They rage. They get out of control. And so what's happened to Demetrius and the silversmiths? Oh, no, their idols were greed. Their idols were business-related. They were all about materialism, all about making money, doing business. You know, sometimes business is business, and it may look unethical to you, but the ultimate rule of business is that business is business, and we will do whatever we have to or want to to continue to make money. And so Paul's preaching threatened both the profitability and the reputation of the silversmith's craft by misleading multitudes in Ephesus and throughout the province, convincing that handmade items are not God. And Paul had already said that in the sermon on Mars Hill to the philosophers at Athens and no doubt made the same case whenever introducing pagans to their creator. Demetrius was right. The truth that Paul preached, the gospel, which is the power to overthrow the idols of the heart and reset the heart upon the only true and living God. So he preached. And uh, the, uh, he was right. He threatened both the idols whom the silversmiths served not only the great goddess Artemis, but also the money they made from her devotees. In fact, their strongest motive was covetousness, which is idolatry. And some of us today think we're way too sophisticated to worship deities fashioned from stone and silver. Yet we serve and trust the idol of finance, oblivious to the hollow ring of its promises. We have an idolatry bias in our souls. And sometimes it's upsetting. How do I know that I have an idol in my heart? Well, for me, I become threatened. And then, you know, people either fight or flee. And my instinct or temperament is to fight and to challenge and to aggressively go after. Other people withdraw and move aside when their idols are threatened. But let me give you an example. Let's say that my idol is not power or approval or security or wealth, but comfort. Let's say that the God I worship is comfort and that what I long for more out of life is to sit in my nice easy chair and everybody to leave me alone. I really enjoy that and so I prepare special times in my days where I can go sit in my easy chair and worship the goddess or God of comfort. And then the telephone rings. And when my girls were at home, Dad, I have a flat tire. My natural instinct is to say, well, what did you do? Did you drive over glass? Did you run into a nail? You know, I'd be angry about it. And then I would say, well, change the tire. Don't you know some boys you can call that like you to come change your tire? No, I'd get up in anger, go get in my car, drive to where they were, and I would have to preach the gospel to myself the whole way there. Why? Because my God of comfort had been destroyed. And by the way, idols never deliver on what they promise you anyway, and, and we're covenantal beings. We're going to enter into relationships with God or the gods, and we enter into a covenant of works kind of relationship with our idols, and we believe that if we do everything just right, the idol's going to deliver, and he or she's going to pay us what we deserve. But I'm here to tell you, payday never comes, except at the end of time. 
So this is what we got going on in Ephesus. A crass motive as monetary profit had to be hidden behind the ones that would arouse the ardor of the whole Ephesian populace. Therefore, Demetrius closed by raising the specter that Paul's insults could rob their world-renowned deity of her rightful majesty. This is demagoguery and, um, what would you call it, politics at its best. They sat out on the streets chanting at the top of their voices, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and soon an out-of-control mob joined in the shout. And so this is a riot. We've been seeing riots lately this last year. We've seen them all year long, where people seem to lose control and uh, riot. And what drives rioting usually is some kind of idol, some kind of idolatry. And so the devotees of the goddess worship were confused. Luke's record of the rioters reflects the chaos of the crowd. The rioters could not get their hands on the culprit they sought, that is Paul. Instead, they grabbed two of his Macedonian buddies, a guy named Gaius and Aristarchus, and dragged them into the great amphitheater in Ephesus, which seats 25,000 people, which is still intact today. We were going to go on a trip to see uh, Ephesus, and I was so looking forward to seeing this, remembering what happened there. And maybe one day we'll get to go there. But they dragged him into the city's amphitheater and uh, an emergency assembly was called of the Ephesian citizenry. And according to Acts chapter 20 verse 4, not long after the, this crisis, Paul would be accompanied by Aristarchus and by Gaius of Derby, Derby in Galatia and by others as he traveled through uh, Achaia and Macedonia. Apparently Paul had two companions named Gaius, and it seems like only one named Aristarchus, uh, who was not intimidated by hardship, but would even endure the shipwreck and imprisonment with Paul. So the uh, rage of the crowd swirled around these brothers. Paul wanted to enter the theater and to speak on their behalf. If ever there was a time Paul thought to seize the day, here it was. And so he was dissuaded, however, by a surprising coalition of counselors and the providence of God. It wasn't his time to go yet. He probably would have if he did. Um, not only the disciples, his Christian brothers, but also Paul's friends among the Asiarchs uh, had political and religious preeminence as priest of the sanctuaries dedicated to the goddess Roma and the emperor. Those who counted themselves Paul's friends were perhaps patrons of his. In view of the link with Rome, they felt special responsibility to shield Paul, a Roman citizen, which we will hear more and more about, from the harm that could come upon him from uh, the clash of his own boldness with the unpredictable violence of an angry mob. So Paul endured intense persecution, we know, at Ephesus, but on this occasion... He was providentially spared. Those gathered in the theater knew from the silversmith's chant that the glory of their goddess had been challenged. 
But in the confusion, many had no idea whence the challenge had come. In the turmoil, the Jews put forward one of their guys, Alexander, to offer some sort of defense. He was shouted down before the direction of his remarks could be heard. Possibly he would have tried to distance the Jewish community from Paul's criticism of man-made gods deflecting the ire of the idolaters exclusively on the Christians. You know, now that wouldn't be an orthodox Jewish position because where Paul drew on the whole theme of idolatry was where? The Old Testament. And so I don't know what kind of Jew this guy was, but he wasn't driven by Torah, shall we say. And if that was his purpose, it was a sad symptom of tolerant compromise with the surrounding pagan atmosphere at odds with the ancient prophet's expose of the emptiness of an idol. You know, compromise is taking the easy route or not responding. Um, compromise is subtle, but it ends up like the frog boiling in the kettle, so to speak, degree by degree. I had a very good friend who went to seminary with me. He was a year after me. And when I went to Louisiana to plant a church near New Orleans, he was in the original core group. He had never uh, entered into the ministry. He had had real difficulty with some sick children. And so while he was a seminary graduate, he had not been attending a church like this one or others that preached the Bible. He, he went to some sort of liberal Presbyterian church because that was the only Presbyterian church there and because they tended and took good care of his family and there were loving people there. But I remember his attending the first meetings we had, the first Bible studies I taught uh, on the book of Galatians at Louisiana. And I remember one particular night, he took me out on the front porch and tears were flowing down his face. And I looked at him and I said, what's the matter? I said, did, did someone offend you, or did I offend you, or is something going on in your heart, or your struggle, or whatever? And he just started crying. He said, these tears are tears of joy. He said, I've been swimming in a dirty fish pole, bowl in that church for so long, I've forgotten what clean, clear water looks like. And he said, when you taught the gospel tonight out of the book of Galatians, he said, it overwhelmed my soul. He said, I was born again, again. I was renewed again. He said, I didn't realize how subtly I had drifted and drifted and drifted away from the centrality of the gospel. And, uh, how for him this church plant was so timely and so significant and our church ministered a great deal to that family as a result but that's exactly what had happened to the Jewish community at this particular time then again Alexander's defense would have affirmed Israel's faith that the Lord alone is God as Paul did and then defended the Jews freedom to practice their convictions we'll never know because the crowd drowned out his comments anyway with two hours of mind-numbing adulation for their divine patroness. Finally, we see the advocates of goddess worship rebuked. Only the authority of a city clerk could quell the tumultuous mantra, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
As the highest civic official, he was the city's liaison to the Roman provincial government uh, in Asia, which had its seat in Ephesus. Ephesus was a free city enjoying some autonomy um, to establish and enforce its own laws under the Roman Empire's overarching authority. Such privileges could be quickly revoked, however, if the proconsul of Asia decided that the city could not control its unruly elements. Thus, when the clerk had silenced the roars of the crowd, he delivered a speech to defuse the situation. His remarks reinforced Luke's reassurance to Theophilus that the Christian faith is not a revolutionary movement intent on sowing discord or undercutting social order. The clerk's argument is twofold. First, the reputation of Artemis and Ephesus stands secure, undiminished by the words or activities of the Christians. Second, Demetrius and the silversmiths are the ones who have put the welfare of the city at risk by precipitating this illegal and disorderly assembly. The first argument seems to rest either on a legal technicality or a misunderstanding of the implications of the gospel. It was undeniable that Ephesus was known throughout the world as the guardian of the largest and grandest temple to Artemis. What is Unrecorded elsewhere is the presence there of an image of the goddess that had fallen from heaven, such as meteors were associated with. Other temples and shrines of Artemis were at Taurus, and so the city clerk affirmed the innocence of Aristarchus and Gaius, asserting that they are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. It's easy to agree that they are not guilty of the former charge, but harder to see how a pagan whose loyalty to Artemis seems unquestionable could understand Paul's critique of idolatry as anything but blasphemy against the goddess Artemis. Perhaps the clerk's point was that no one can testify to hearing from Aristarchus and Gaius the disparaging comments about the goddess that Paul would have made himself. Perhaps he felt the image fell from heaven was exempt from Paul's critique of handmade gods. But it's equally possible that Demetrius grasped more accurately than did the city clerk the real implications of Paul's message. The Christian faith did indeed place the goddess' reputation at risk, not through slanders, but through the sober truth of the living God. The gospel has a way of undermining idolatries. It changes us from the inside out. It changes our hearts. We are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit bringing to bear God's Word upon our souls. And so the clerk's second argument repeats a common theme in the book of Acts. Those who oppose the gospel not those who promote it, break the laws of the state and disrupt the tranquility of the social order. Why was that such a big deal? Because the Romans, if they heard of disorder, if they heard of chaos, if they heard about rioting, and they knew it was done by the economic base of the city, the silversmiths, they would have clamped down on Ephesus and Asia Minor, and they would have removed them from a freedom state and put them back under the yoke of the Roman Empire and the Roman law. 
And so the clerk is saying, uh, you know, tone it down, guys, or we're going to lose our privileged position. Legal orderly avenues were open for Demetrius to pursue his complaint against Paul, either in the proconsul's provincial court or when the municipal citizenry gathered together uh, in its uh, monthly legal assembly. The present gathering, though, had no legal warrant that could be offered in defense if the proconsul called the city to account for rioting. With this reasonable warning, the clerk managed to disperse the mob. Like our Lord, and this is the whole point of this narrative, in my opinion, from Luke's point of view, Christians need not and must not advance the cause of the kingdom by means of violence employed by our enemies. We do not fight like the world fights. Do you understand that? We do not fight like the world fights. Our weapons of warfare are not carnal. They're not worldly. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. We fight in weakness, not in strength. We fight through proclamation of the gospel. With such an arsenal, we can repay evil with kindness and forthright witness, watching God win His victory in His time and in His way. And so, that's what Luke wants us to get from this passage. That this rioting in Ephesus shows that the method of social unrest and the message of rioting or the method of rioting are weapons of this world. But our weapons are mightier. Our weapons are stronger. Look what the gospel did in the city of Ephesus. Look how it powerfully changed hearts who had been enslaved to the idols of Artemis and completely transformed and changed. Look at the book and read the book of Ephesians where he talks about we do not war against flesh and blood but against spiritual uh, darkness and principalities and powers of wickedness in high places. We, we don the armor of God. Our sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And we pray it is on our knees that we bring about transformation. Church needs to be the church. That's who the church needs to be. Christ's body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and what it says to us in the depths of our being. We do repent today of our own idols. It's so easy to cherry pick and look at people like Demetrius and say, well, I'm so glad I'm not stupid like him. But the reality is we're just like him. Had it not been for your grace, had it not been for your drawing us and wooing us to Jesus, had it not been for the regenerating work of the Savior, had it not been for the gifts of repentance and faith, we would be swallowed up in idolatry, lost, without hope, and in the world. But we thank you that in your grace you have shown us our desperate need for salvation. We cannot save ourselves. And that we must come and cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. Turn from life as it has been to new life in Christ. 
and turn and rely upon Him, who He is and what He's done to make us right. This we pray, Lord, believing in Jesus' name. Amen.